We'll uh, look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6 tonight. And so uh, I'll just read the text for us. You can follow along. It's just, it's just 12 verses, so it's probably going to be a quick study. But it says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy or is common with mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a, father, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's, life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet... His appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The, wor- the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of the, his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell a, a man what will be after him under the sun? The last time we were together, we finished up chapter five and uh we were we were talking about um uh the poor and and the the wealthy and um he says there in verse uh the vanity of 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 wealth and honor and, and he said down there in verse 19 um about it that that what i've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and, enjoy, and, and rejoice in his toil. That is the gift of God. Uh, and what this... Chapter six continues on in this this vein, and it really talks about this evil under uh, the sun. And, and the evil is is when people don't recognize uh, what they have, the life, the possessions, everything um, comes from the hand of God. They think somehow that they acquired it themselves, and so that's kind of a fundamental law throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. We've seen this many times. Um, and here, he's talking about the ability, first of all, 
to have things, but the secondly, the ability to enjoy the things you have. That even is a gift from God. Uh, and that's pretty good theology when you think about it, um, that all these things come from the hand of God because that's what the Bible tells us. Uh, there's nothing that we have, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, that we didn't get from the hand of God. So in the Christian life especially, there's no room for ego. There's no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance. Um, but we have to have a certain, I think, humility when it comes to our lives. I mean, even as we go to our jobs tomorrow, you know, um, it's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking it all about our ability or all about our even our ability to enjoy what we have. And, and, and God says, no, you have to understand that not only do I give you your job and, and everything that you have, all your material things, but I also give you the ability to enjoy these things. And, um, and God is, is basically telling us here that we need to be reminded that everything comes from his hand. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't get this truth. They don't understand this truth. And the reason I know this to be true is because I know a lot of people have a lot of stuff, right? A ton of stuff, but they're not happy. They're miserable. You think, boy, if I just had a little bit of what they had, I'd be really happy. But that's, that's not where happiness comes from. That's not where joy comes from. And a lot of times, you know, when God gives us something, when he, 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 he gifts us with something, at first, our initial response, you know, maybe we're in between jobs and we're praying for the new job and all of a sudden, boy, this thing, opportunity comes up and pretty soon we got a new job and we're going, whoa, thank you, God. And then, you know, that lasts for a couple of days. And then after a couple of weeks, we think, yeah, I kind of deserve this job. I mean, they picked me out of all these other people. I am gifted. I mean, I need, they need me here. And then we're telling other people eventually, yeah, you know, I got this job. And there was 100 people that applied, but they picked me. And pretty soon it's all about us. And we forget, wait a minute, what? who gave us this job? And we all fall into that trap at, at certain points. And what happens is sometimes we, we fall into that worldly pattern of thinking that somehow the things that we accumulate, um, the new job, the new car, the new house, whatever it might be, is that not only did I deserve this, but I worked hard for this, and this is mine, and, and you know, I did, you know I, I, this is a result of my hand. Um, and it, it doesn't work out that way, because a lot of times if you're going after things with that kind of heart, you're going to find out that even if you collect all the things, what happens? Your heart's still not satisfied, right? There's still an emptiness there. Um, and this is what he says here in verse 1. He says, there's an evil. What's the evil? The, the mere fact that you're not acknowledging that God has gifted you with whatever he's gifted you with. And so he says, I've seen this evil that I've seen under the sun. And the ESV says it lies heavy on mankind. Um, other translations in, in, in the uh, Hebrew, it basically means it's great upon the back of mankind, or it's, it's common, it's frequent, it, it's everywhere, is what, what he's saying here. Um, we have to understand there's nothing we receive that we did not get from the hand of God. And uh, the evil is when you don't acknowledge that. That's the evil he's talking about here. It's the fact that in spite of all the accumulation, in spite of the fact that you have everything you want, your soul is still 
not satisfied because you're forgetting where it came from. And uh, he points out three things here. He, he talks about the frustration of having everything you want but not being able to enjoy it. We'll get to that in verse 2. Secondly, he points out that there's futility in life. He uses that word a lot. Um, when there's no inward satisfaction. You can have all this stuff on the outside, but you could still be void on the inside. He talks about that in verses 3 through 9. We got everything we want, but we're still so unhappy. Uh, that's really, you know, that, that evil that he's talking about. You know, when, when God gifts us with all this thing, this should, this should cause us to, to run to the, the feet of the Lord with thanksgiving. But, you know, our sinful flesh we begin to believe somehow that we accumulated this stuff, and this is from our hand, and, and pretty soon we're worshiping it, the, the God of materialism, and God's saying, hey, you know, where do you think this came from? And then thirdly, he points out here in verses 10 to 12, it involves a failure of man to improve his situation. You would think that as he looks at how this pans out, you would think at a certain point people would come to their knees and say, wow, I really need the Lord in my life but they do just the opposite. What they do is they get themselves in trouble and then they, they decide they have the wisdom to somehow figure out how to get out of it. They can solve the problem themselves. They're not going to look to God. I mean, how foolish we are sometimes. Um, and so they, they turn to you know, self-help stuff. How can I get this ability to have joy in my heart no matter what happens on the outside? How do people have that kind of joy? Um, how do I get that wonderful peace that the Bible talks about? Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're full, whether you're hungry. How, how do you get that peace that controls your life? And Solomon's answer is, not only does everything else come from the Lord, but that comes from the Lord. Um, but unfortunately, we have a tendency to keep looking elsewhere. Um, and so let's go back to the first one here in verses 1 and 2. Take a look at the frustration of having everything you want, but not able to enjoy it. This is what he says here in verse 2. He says, A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing at all that he desires. I mean, think about that. That's every, everything you have. You don't, lack, you don't lack anything that you desire. He says, Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy him but a stranger enjoys them. And he says, this is vanity. It's a grievous evil. Um, It's something that's found frequently in in the society we live in. It tells us that it's common there. That's that's the whole idea. It's it's great. It's heavy. It's frequent. It's prevalent. And you can't escape it. You can't run from it. It's going to haunt you. It's going to hunt you down. Um, The idea that you can get everything that you ever wanted whether it's a job, whether it's a possession, whether it's a bank account, a particular investment, whatever it is you want, a wife, children, you name it. Everything you wanted in life. But guess what? You can't enjoy it. Isn't that, that would be horrible, wouldn't it, to have everything you want, but you have no joy in those things. Um, that would be this evil that he's talking about. It's a great evil. But it's extensive. We see it in our, in our society all over the place. Uh, people who work so hard at trying to get things, all of a sudden they discover they're still empty inside. They don't, they don't 
There's no happiness in their life. Um, we want to get everything we think we want, but it doesn't bring that inward satisfaction. And there's two points here. Why? The reason is found in the failure to recognize who gave it to him. We, we spoke of this already. It says there in verse 2, it's a man, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor. Why does the, the stranger, it says, enjoy them? Why, what's it talking about? Why, why would a stranger enjoy these things? Well, if you're not acknowledging that these things come from the hand of God, um, it's really a failure to recognize who gave it to him, gave it to you in the first place. And, you know, there's a real danger in that. And, you know, sometimes we, we get blessings from the Lord. Um, God answers prayer. And like I said before, we initially, boy, we're just praising the Lord. And then pretty soon we turn the tables and all of a sudden, you know, the conversation turns and, you know, it's, you know, we're retelling the story, but we're, we're retelling it not in a way that glorifies God, but really in a way that glorifies us. Um, and so we have to be reminded constantly because as soon as, as soon as we begin to see things as a product of our own um, accomplishment, our own commitment, our own skills, whatever it might be, rather than from the hand and a gift from the hand of God, you're, as a Christian especially, you're moving into troubled waters. Okay? And so we, we just have to be reminded of this because it's our nature to glorify ourselves. It's our nature to build up ourselves, um, to be braggadocious about our skills or our abilities or, you know, how much, you know, the people at work love us and how much are we getting promoted and the house we have in the car. That's just what we do as human beings. And so we have to constantly be reining that in time and time again. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting how we think it comes from people rather than from God. And somehow that inward dissatisfaction, that lack of peace, the lack of joy, all that stuff, we, we blame that on people. Well, it's not, it's not coming from people. It's coming from our lack of ability to give God the glory and, and to realize that it's, it's God who is giving it to us in the first place. So we should have hearts of thanksgiving. Um, the second thing here is the result of it even is caused by God. Uh, and that's the second thing he points out here as far as this frustration, is that the result is caused by God. I think it's, it's important to understand how, you know, how do you understand this message? You know, when you, 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 you walk, a, walk away tonight, you'll be saying, well, you know, I, I guess we should be gracious and we should be thankful and we should be joyful and there's a danger even in walking away going, okay, tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm going to wake up and, you know, boy, this is the day the Lord has made and this is going to be a great day and praise the Lord and you get to work and somebody ticks you off and the joy's gone, right? I mean, it's just gone because you think somehow you have the capacity to generate this joy and we don't. And we want to make it down to a simple list. You know, we do this, we do our devotions, we pray before our meals, and we go to church, and we, you know, and then everything is going to be joy, joy, joy. Well, that's not always the case. Because I believe there's certain times in our life when, frankly, God doesn't want us in a state of joy. Maybe he wants us in a state of grieving. Maybe he wants us in a state of frustration. Why? Because it's his goal to keep us dependent upon him 24-7. Every moment of every day. 
And a lot of times we, you know, we, we buy into the, the modern day Christian message that, well, as a Christian, you should be happy and everything should be going well. And if it is, that means there's no sin in your life. And boy, but boy, if, if things are a struggle for you and boy, you know, your, your world's being turned upside down, you know, well, what's really going on in your life? You know, we look at them as circumspect, something like God is judging them, when in fact, it may just be part of the will of God. Um, and so we have to be um, patient. And we have to realize when that joy is lacking or when we're losing that joy, that sometimes that's the time not to work harder at trying to get it, but just to stop what we're doing and just to, to trust in God. Um, because the problem is that we, the result of having joy in what God has given us also comes from God, and we forget, we forget that. That's a gift from God as well, not just the stuff, but the joy of having the stuff, the, the ability to enjoy what God has given you. That comes from God as well. And so many times we think that we can generate this on our own. And so God, in his loving way, keeps us completely dependent upon him. And every time you think you're in charge of this, guess what? God steps in and he begins to frustrate you. You know, as soon as you think you got this thing handled or whatever, you know, somehow something happens in your life where you're back on your, on your heels and you're going, oh, God, and that's where he wants you. And so it's okay. It's okay to be there. Um, you know, don't, don't fall into the trap if you just, you know, work hard and do your job. And, you know, a lot of people work hard. A lot of people do their jobs very well. But you know what? They're miserable. They're completely unhappy inside. And they don't even know why. And the reason is, is because they don't acknowledge that this joy has to come from the Lord. It can't come from us. Um, and, and really, the, the reason it's found in our failure to understand, it's from God. It's not a result of having joy or having joy itself. It's, it's, that itself is caused by the Lord. Um, and so he points that out. You know, if you ignore God in your life, if you're, if you're trapped by your own frustration, um, there's no way out of that until you come to the Lord. The harder you push, the harder you try to make things better for yourself, I really believe that it it just gets worse because you're not not giving up. You're not surrendering to the Lord, and that's what he wants. He wants a heart that's surrendered to him. Um, a, a A lot of this stuff happens really to adults in their middle ages. I mean, we've even given it a title, right? Yeah. What? Yeah. Midlife crisis, right? You've heard that. Well, you know what? God didn't make that up. That's not from, that's not from God. That's something the world created to, to kind of excuse our behavior at certain times. Um, you know, if you don't know a lot about midlife crisis, don't read about it because you'll probably have one. But, you know, it's better... <laughs> You know, to, to just recognize the fact that that's not terminology that God comes up with. Um, God keeps us at a place of total dependence upon him. And sometimes that involves crises in our life or, or whatever it is. But we just have to be dependent on him. Psalm 39, 6 says, Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. In other words, you know what? You can have all the money in the world, and yet 
not have the capacity to enjoy it. Or you could be dead and not have the ability to enjoy it. You know, and strangers are enjoying it on your behalf. Um, that's the whole point. It's, you know, we, we can't generate this joy by ourselves. It comes from God, and the ability to enjoy ourselves in this life is from the hand of God. It's a byproduct, really, of our relationship with the Lord. It's not happiness. Joy is this, this inner um, thing that God does in our, in our lives. And you can have joy in the middle of a crisis. Or, and it's sad when you see people that, you know, are, are Christians, they claim to be Christians, and when crisis, when they're, they're met with crisis, there's, there's no peace. There's no joy. There's no satisfaction. They're shaking their fist angrily at God. And I'm thinking, wow, what happened here? You know, weren't you just singing how great thou art and great is thy faith when it's on Sunday? And now, wow, yeah, your life's a little messed up now, but so that truth doesn't apply now? And, and that's what happens, more than not. And so we, we just have to be on our guard about that. And so remember, the frustration of having everything you want but not being able to enjoy it. That's not, you don't want to be in that spot. Well, secondly, it says... says in verse uh, 3 here, he says, um, if a man fathers a hundred children... I mean, I don't know why you'd want to do that, but... You know, think about that. That's a lot of kids, right? He's just using hyperbole here. But if a man fathers a hundred children, he says, um, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, so he's got a big family, long life, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. So he's got everything. You know, to have 100 children, that would be somebody who's really, really, really blessed in that culture because that's how they looked at things. But if they had all that, but their, their soul was not satisfied with life's good things, it says, and he also has no burial. Um, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. I mean, what in the world is he talking about here? Uh, it, it, it talks about this, this soul not being satisfied several times here. And it, and it speaks of this inward um, satisfaction that we can have if we have the right perspective when it comes to our Christian life, when it comes to God's blessing in our lives. Uh, but it's seen here in this comparison he uses with a stillborn born child. I mean, this text may be a little confusing, but he, it's just really a, a, a contrast here um, between the father of a hundred children and a child who was never born. That's, that's what he's contrasting. Uh, Michael Eaton, in his commentary on, on Ecclesiastes, says this, It's better to miscarry at birth uh, than the miscarry throughout an entire life. Uh, and it also brings out a truth here. I mean... I don't know what your background is with this, but, um, I mean, how true it is that a child is better? You know, you think of, of a stillborn child or even an aborted child. I mean, the scripture says that they're, they're better off. Why? Because the child doesn't have to enjoy all the conflicts and frustrations and futility that he's been talking about in this book. You don't have that. 
uh, I mean, Solomon points out that life is filled with much grief, much sorrow, uh, much emptiness. Um, it, you know, vanity. There's no purpose. He he talks about that, and he he says basically uh, a child's much better off. And and there's another indication too in the Old Testament that that teaches that that children when they die are with the Lord. Um, sometimes this is kind of a controversial thing, but I believe that when children die, if before they understand the gospel, they God takes them home. And and this is one reason because it. it indicates here that they're better off well if they're in hell they're not better off right but uh if they're in the presence of the lord they are and plus you have david right with uh with the, the little lost the little child with Bathsheba. you remember that and he specific he specifically mentions that the child cannot come back to him but i will go what to them so uh, that's evidence to tell us that these little babies that die before they really comprehend the gospel um, they're much better off. They're at peace. They're at rest with the Lord. And people say, well, you know, how does that work with election? You know, how could you say that? If, if Well, I, I just think God elected all the little babies. I mean, he knew who was going to die, so he just he elected them all. You know, and that's not an issue at all. I mean, God can do whatever he wants. Um, so, you know, today, I, I mean, people who think that they have the world by the tail, they discover, you know, that, wow, you know, this is how somehow they're going to find peace with God or with the Lord. Uh, what happens is they find that there's no inward satisfaction. And uh, he's, he's making this comparison here. And he continues here in, in verse um, 4. He says, For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness. And in darkness its name is covered. Verse 5, Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds, speaking of the baby, finds rest rather than he, rather than the person who has all these things, a thousand cho- or a hundred children and, and all that stuff. Um, and so it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, Ecclesiastes seems kind of like a downer book. It's always talking about death. It's talking about you know, no purpose in life, vanity, vanity. But you know what? Death is, is a reality. It's, it's part of life. Uh, it's much easier to view it that way than to be you know, caught off guard when it happens, to be surprised when it happens. I mean, nobody wants to die, I don't think. But you know what? We're all going to die. One day we're going to die. It could be tonight. It could be tomorrow. It could be in 10 years, 20 years, whatever. But if the Lord does not return, eventually we will have a funeral. We will be dead. We, you know, People will be having going to our memorial service or whatever. Um, that's the, the great equalizer in life, right? Death. doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. You know, you think of, of some of the people that have passed away, and we're all, we all are touched by death all the time, whether it's through extended family members, whether it's through friends, whether it's through whatever. I mean, I would find it very hard to believe that even this past year that you didn't somehow know someone who either was directly affected by death or a relative or a friend or whatever. And, but you know what? The good thing is to the believer, it's not a threat. Death isn't something to be feared, right? I mean, it's something that, it's just a, it's just a graduation. You know, you're, you're going from this life into, the, into the, the presence of the Lord. And the good thing is, is you know, we don't get the, 
pick when that happens. We don't get to pick how it happens. That's, the Bible says, in the hands of the Lord. And so, you know, there, there should be a, an element of trust. Um, it's not a, a threat to the believer, but it should be a threat to the person who's just trusting in their wealth or trusting in their materialism. And they have no satisfaction. They have no meaning in life. And that's kind of what he's trying to point out here. And so it's, it's really a, um, the, it's, a it's, the, it's the great uh, equalizer. And so he, he says here in verse 6, even though he should live a thousand years twice, or two thousand years. That puts him up there with some other pretty twice over people in the Bible, right? Um, but even though he should live a, a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. In, in other words, death. We're all going to end up in the grave. We're all going to be um, dead at some point. And so he really uh, just kind of points that out. And then he contrasts there in verses 7 to 9 with, with the poor person. He says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Uh, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. I mean, he's very blunt here. He, he's, he's showing that all the labor of, of man, why do we do it? So we can eat. <laughs> so we can sustain ourselves. And yet, we're never satisfied. We're never satisfied. Proverbs uh, 16.26 says, A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. <laughs> uh, Proverbs 30.15 says, The leech has two daughters. I don't know if you've ever been affected by a leech, but we had a pond, and once in a while we'd get leeches on us. And, you know. But it says in verse 15 of Proverbs 30, The leech has two daughters. Give and give. <laughs> Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. And, and that's kind of how some, sometimes, you know, unfortunately life, life is. There's some people that look at things like that and they are never satisfied. The more they get, the more they want. And, you know, I, I just, sometimes I shake my head at some of these people. I mean, they have billions and billions and billions of dollars. You know, and it's like, you know, or somebody even that doesn't have that much money. Take somebody like, you know, Tom Brady. I mean, he's had a great career. He's got more money than he could ever spend. And there's something inside him that just won't let him walk away. You know, he's probably going to come back next year and risk being injured. And who knows? I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I get it, the competitive spirit and all that. That's wonderful. But, boy, you know, how, how much is enough? How many... I mean, does he want all ten fingers filled up with the Super Bowl ring? I don't know, you know. Uh, we don't think that's going to happen. But anyway, you know, it's just, it's just that's the way life is. We, whatever we, we are granted, we always want more. And the problem is that the soul is not satisfied. That's what he says here. He says it twice. The soul is not satisfied. No matter how much you have, your soul is never going to say, okay, this is enough. Naturally, it's just not going to happen. 
You know, you may get the, ri- the raise at work, and you think, wow, okay, man, I'm making more than I ever made before. I sh-. But you know what? You're, well, you're going to want more. Or that's just the way it is. Um, that's how we, the, the sinful nature that makes up our, our being operates. And so we constantly have to rein that in, and we constantly have to say, wait a minute, how much is enough here? Um, and it's not the amount. It's not, you know... The amount of what we have, it's, it's being satisfied with what we have. Um, that's, that's where this joy that God is speaking of comes from. When you acknowledge that it comes from his hand and you acknowledge that, you know what? Okay, this is, this is what I have. And you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, we need to work hard and we need to be responsible and all those things. But at the same time, we have to realize that our soul is never going to be satisfied with stuff. It, we just won't be. And the principle is, he points it out there, pretty simple, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. Uh, you know, the wandering of desire, one commentator says, is, is that law of diminishing returns. It often prevents us from enjoying what we, what we see and being content with what we have. The more we have, the more we want. You know, it's just the way it works. And it, it can be very, uh, it can cause a lot of issues uh, with folks. So you, you see the frustration of having everything you want but not being able to enjoy it. Secondly, the futility of life and there's no, when there's no inward satisfaction. But the last three verses here, or two verses here, point out that there's the failure of us, mankind, to improve our situation. He says there in verse 10, whatever has come... To be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, (laughs) which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what we will be after, what will be after him under the sun? Um... You know, we, we live in a world where we'll try anything to improve our situation. I mean, just watch TV for a little bit and look at the commercials. What are they trying to do? They're trying to get people to improve their situation. It doesn't matter whether it's weight loss or better cooking pan or, oh, you know, this or that or whatever. You know, it's just crazy some of the stuff they sell on there. But why do they do it? Why do they spend all these millions of dollars on advertising? Because people buy into it. They're, 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 they're buying into that whole mentality. We want to try anything to improve our situation. And usually, I mean, some of those things work, but most of it's, you know, a bunch of garbage. And yet, you know, we still at least try it once. <laughs> at least I do sometimes. It's just like, oh, that's interesting. I'll try that, you know. That might be good, you know. I've learned not to sign up for the six-month supply now, just maybe the month and try it for a month, see if it works. But still, I mean, you know, and usually it's like, okay, you step away and you go, Okay, am I seeing any change here? Is it really helping or not? Or whatever it might be, you know. Um, we read books, we go to seminars, try to do anything. Why are we doing all this? Because there's dissatisfaction in our own hearts. You know, we want to be thinner, we want to be younger, we want to look better, all these things. And you know what? What he's pointing out here is the sad truth is that we can't improve our own situation. We can't. Why not? Well, points it out here, we can't change who we are. 
We cannot change who we are. In chapter uh, 7, look at verse 1. It says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. I mean, you can try all you want, but you know what? You're not going to be able to change who you are. This is the biggest problem newlywed couples have. It was the biggest problem we had when we first got married. What did we try to do? We tried to change each other. You know, I mean, I dated my wife for six years before we got married. It's like, okay, you didn't know that I was a little shy about some things. And I mean, come on, figure it out. You know, I'm not going to just change because I have a ring on my finger now. And, you know, and neither did I expect her to change in that way. And so sometimes we have to stop, you know, trying to change other people and and really just focus on ourselves. But we're not even going to be able to change our basic character. And yet the world thinks they buy into the fact that, well, somehow you can you can change yourself. You know, only God can change us. That's why, you know, the Bible says very clearly, you know, we need to be what? Born again? Why? Because he can't can't really work with this. He he needs to do a whole new transformation, a new heart, a new mind. Everything has to be changed. And, And only God can do that. So we can't change who we are, basically. And once you admit that, there's a lot of freedom in that. You know, there's a lot of freedom. I mean, for years, I would try to be someone else. You know, well, gee, if I just could speak that way, or if I could just be quick that way with my mind. You know what? My mind doesn't think quick. I'm sorry. I mean, you can tell me a joke, and I'll sit there and look at you. Okay, uh, you know, and five minutes later, maybe I'll get it. You know, I'm not real quick that way. That's just who I am. I'm okay with that now. But earlier on, I thought, wow, how can I... Boy, take some brain pills or something, man. What's going on? And, you know, you have to be able to recognize who you are and and really, in a way, celebrate that because that's how God created you. You know, I'm not the most merciful person. You know, I remember when John Worthy and I used to do counseling together. You know, we'd we'd come in here in the fellowship hall. We'd be counseling somebody, and I'd let him take the lead because he was doing a lot of research on biblical counseling. You know, we'd sit there and talk for an hour and a half. And sometimes the person would talk for a half hour. And I'm sitting there just like, oh my gosh, shut up. You know, seriously, in my heart, I'm just thinking, why is he letting this person just, you know, I mean, I can see very clearly what needs to be fixed. You know, here's the verse. Let's apply it, go do it, let's leave, you know, pray and leave. And, you know, I'd sit there and and then John would, you know, give him all this counsel. And then he turned to me and he'd, so, well, Steve, do you have anything to offer? I said, well, just a couple things. Here, here's the sin that's in your life. Here's the verse that you need to do. Let's meet in two weeks. Let's pray. <laughs> you know? And he'd just go, wow, that was it? You know? But, you know, we're two different people. And you have to be willing to celebrate that. Now, I've grown more merciful, as, you know, understanding over the years. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was a long time ago. But still, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, God works, but that's who I, you know, that's who I am, basically, and you have to be able to celebrate that. But he also says here, you can't contend with God about who he is. Um, Look at what he says here in verse 10, because he kind of points out, he says, whatever has come to be has already been named. Um, 
and it is known what man is that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. I mean, you might not like what God has done with you in creating you, okay? But you need to learn to accept it. That's the lesson here. Um, And quit trying to be somebody you're not and just rejoice in the circumstances that he ordered for you to be. Um, You see this a lot when when uh, once in a while we'll, we'll give folks a uh, spiritual gifts assessment. You know, and it's not like, it's not concrete. It's just kind of point them in the right direction. But, you know, some people take that test, the little assessment for the gifts, spiritual gifts, and I've heard it out of people's mouths. You know, I said, well, well, what did you discover about your gifts? Well, I'm really mad. I wanted to be a teacher, and I don't even have anything here. You know, <laughs> my gift is giving. I don't want to give. I want to be a teacher. And it's like, well, okay, stop. <laughs> You know, I mean, they're physically upset over this. And it's like, you know, that's not how it works. You don't get, God gives us these gifts. We don't get to choose a gift. That's not what it works. Sometimes we even do with God. Why, why did you make me this way? Why, do you, why can't you make me like that person? And there's a, there's a big dissatisfaction in our hearts. And you're not supposed to contend with God about that. That's what it, Paul says in Romans 9, right? Verse 20. But who are you, O man? Right? That's what Paul says. To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? You know, the answer is no. <laughs> the clay doesn't get to say to the, the, the potter, hey, well, you wait, stop, stop. I don't want to be a vase. I don't want to be a vase. It doesn't work that way. And, and God has cr- created us all with different gifts, with different talents, with different abilities. You know, we see that Often in our church, when different individuals teach, you know, I'll teach one way, Ken would teach another way, David teach another way, Danny would teach another way. You know, it's just celebrating who we are. We don't have to be a cookie cutter template of of someone else. That's not what God has called us to do. So we need to accept how God has made us. And then um, verse twelve here just points out we can't comprehend what is good. Uh, for ourselves. Verse 12, it says, for who knows what is good for man? (laughs) Verse uh, 28 of chapter uh, 8 of Romans says, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, right? For those who are called according to his purpose. Or in Psalm 84, verses 10 to 12, it says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand years elsewhere, a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper, he says, in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Uprightly, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The only one who knows what's good for us is who? Is God. I mean, sometimes we think we know what's good for us. And we pray to that end, and then God doesn't answer our prayer, and then we go, no, this is not what I wanted. But he knows. He knows exactly what what is best for us. Um, And the bottom line is we don't. And it just goes a lot easier. Life goes a lot easier when we just accept that fact. Um, Only God knows what is best for us. We can't even begin to comprehend what's best for us. And then in in, in the other part of uh, verse 12 there, points out that we can't control our future. It says, who can tell a man what will be after uh, him under the sun? 
Um, we, we don't know what tomorrow will hold. We don't know what next week will hold. We don't know what tonight will hold. You know, are we were called to trust in the Lord. Uh, Jeremiah 10.23 says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. That's the problem with today, even within the church. People think the way of the Lord is within themselves. That it is not in man, is not in man who walks to direct his steps. That is, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. In other words, it's God who, who does that, right? It's God who directs the steps. There's nothing we can do to control it. And if there's nothing you can do to control something, why, why worry about it? Why waste time worrying about it? Um, Walter Kaiser wrote this, A man may possess wealth, honor, numerous children, long life, and virtually everything that's outward good that, that anyone could possibly imagine. Yet he can still be a very broken, dissatisfied, and unhappy person. Because prosperity without the divine gift of enjoyment is nothing. God-given wealth without God-given power to enjoy it is a great evil. That's what, that's what he says in this chapter. He's saying you could have everything you could possibly ever imagine, but you know what? If you're not recognizing it, it comes from the hand of God. It's, you're just, it's not good. And so we need to be thankful. We need to be understanding that, you know what, God has a purpose. He has a plan for us. It may not be our purpose, our plan, but that's okay because God knows what's best for us. And, you know, we have to be patient. Just be willing to, to wait on the Lord.